welcome to iChat, a podcast series to deliver eye health information to the people of Northern Ireland. Brought to you by staff and students from Queen's University Belfast. Hello and welcome back to the second episode of our ophthalmology podcast iChat. My name is Christian Ward-Bradley. I'm a fourth year medical student. My name's Patrick. I'm a final year medical student. And in this episode, we're privileged to have Professor Jonathan Jackson as our guest. Professor Jackson is a consultant optometrist with over 30 years of experience in cornea, contact lens, low vision, visual impairment and paediatric optometry. Today we'll be discussing low vision and blindness and exploring various aspects of these conditions and their management. Professor Jackson, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your extensive experience in the field of optometry? Hi guys, thanks a lot. Really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat uh, about these sorts of things. So uh, as you say, I'm I'm an optometrist. I'm head of optometry at the Belfast Health and Social Care Trust and the director of the Northern Ireland Clinical Research Network. I uh, qualified over 30 years ago in optometry uh, and did my pre-registration year at Moorfields Eye Hospital and that's where I got my first introduction to low vision and blindness Uh, and really from then my my interest is picked up. Uh, I came back to Belfast here, established a a low vision clinic uh, and and there are now a lot of peripheral low vision clinics running from the Belfast hub. I also coordinate the uh, data for blind and, and partially sighted registration in Northern Ireland Um, Thanks very much for that. So you mentioned two terms there, uh, low vision and blindness, and could you explain the difference between low vision and blindness? Yeah, I think that's a really pertinent question. So there are lots and lots of terms used around vision impairment. Vision impairment, partial sight, sight loss, severe sight loss, blindness, uh, legally blind, lots and lots of terms. And they all have different meanings, meanings. In the UK, the definitions of blindness and partial sight have essentially a legislative background and and date back away to the start of health service in 1948 or whenever. Uh, And and blindness was that the individual would be so blind as to be unable to perform work for which any sight was required. And partial sight was a sort of not quite as bad as that uh, level of vision impairment. Then subsequent to the 1948 Act, there, there was clinical guidelines introduced to say uh, if your visual acuity, and, and some of you are listening will understand visual acuity, is less than 3 over 60, that would meet the blind registration definition. Uh, there were other definitions that included visual field loss in the peripheral fields, and then the partial sight definitions were always slightly better than that. Now, more recently in legislation, the terms have been changed to severe sight loss and sight loss, okay? Uh, And there are a number of reasons for changing that, but the guidance are basically the same. Now, that applies specifically to the UK. Once you go to a global uh, environment, then there are WHO definitions of vision impairment and blindness and sight loss that, that are similar but not identical to those used in the UK. That was great. Thank you very much. Um, I was just wondering, what are some of the primary causes of low vision and blindness, not just in Northern Ireland, but globally? Well, interestingly, so in Northern Ireland, the causes are almost identical to those in the rest of the UK. 
and are pretty similar to those in the rest of Europe. But if you go to other areas of the developing world in particular, the causes are very different. So in, in Northern Ireland, and as I say, I collate the data on uh, certification year on year. So virtually 50% of those who are certified as either severely sight impaired or sight impaired have got age-related macular degeneration. And as the term implies, these are generally older people over the age of 50, generally much older than that, usually in their 80s and 90s. So the second major, second and third major causes, and year on year they tend to, to skip about a little bit. They count for maybe 8 to 10% of vision impairment or diabetic eye disease and glaucoma. Now, after that, there's a whole range of conditions that account for small uh, amounts of vision impairment, like retinitis pigmentosa, for example, which is a genetic condition. In childhood blindness of children who are certified, over 50% of these children have cortical visual impairment and have visual impairment associated with other neurological impairment. So I could talk to you about lots of other causes, but for cer- certainly within a Northern Ireland context, that's your data. Very similar to the data for the rest of the UK. Now, if you teleport me to Central Africa or Southern Africa, then you have things like uh, cataract come in as a major cause. Now, cataract in the UK, unless it's really complicated cataract, in terms of management, the, the plan is relatively straightforward. But if you're in, in sub-Saharan Africa and there are no ophthalmologists and no surgical facilities available, then you're blind because of cataract and you can get nothing and you can't get anything done with it. Uh, African river blindness is another one uh, that, that is a significant cause. Trauma amongst young people in, in, in the UK and Ireland and there, throughout Europe Health, and, health and, and safety and risk management is a big thing. And it can be a bit of a nuisance at times, but it has dramatically reduced the amount of avoidable vision impairment. Things like, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the introduction of seatbelts. You know, prior to seatbelt legislation, we regularly saw people in corneal clinics with corneal lacerations and who were vision impaired from windscreen glass. You almost never get that now. So that... that there's a kind of overview of, of causes. Yeah, thanks for breaking those down. Um, how exactly can we diagnose low vision and blindness and how important is early detection and management of these visual changes? Okay, so, so diagnosing low vision and vision impairment is relatively easy because you're, you're using functional measurements. So the principal measurement is visual acuity. I mentioned that uh, at, at the start, and that's where you, know, you, you point the individual at a letter chart and how far down they can read the letter chart. And if they can't read anything on the letter chart, then you move the individual closer and closer to the letter chart until they can see the top letter. For really profound sight loss, then it goes from that which is a resolution measure to things like hand movement. Can someone see shapes moving? And worse than that is, can they differentiate light from no light? And if they can differentiate light, can they determine where the light's coming from? So that's relatively easy to quantify. Then we move to, move to near vision task, and it's the same thing. What size of print can you read? That will determine the degree of impairment you have at near. Another measure is something called contrast sensitivity, which has really only come to the fore in the last 10 to 20 years. And that's where uh, an individual can see fine detail when it's very small, as long as it is black against white or white against black or high contrast. But as soon as you start to reduce the contrast, similar to one of the, the, the printouts that I brought with me when the uh, photocopier hadn't been working terribly well, 
that becomes much more difficult to see. And, and that can be a measure of visual impairment. And the other, the third key measurement is how big the visual fields are. So you guys and I who have probably normal vision, our fields are probably about 180 degrees in the horizontal. In other words, you know, something, something's coming round to the side, uh, from your side, as, as they're kind of level with the plane of your ear, you can see something happening. And as the, the nearer they get to the, the your central line of vision, then the sharper it becomes. But that's a measure of visual fields. And that's a tricky one because people can often lose visual fields without knowing about it until it's very late. And, and uh, conditions like retinitis pigmentosa and glaucoma are the classics there. Whereas if you get macular degeneration, that's entirely different. If you get macular degeneration in your better seeing eye, you know immediately something's happening because the world no longer looks right. It looks distorted, it looks twisted, it looks slightly blurry. I thought what you were saying there, you know, in terms of access to care was very interesting in terms of low vision and blindness. I was just wondering, is there anything that we can do to address the issue with access to care? Yeah, so there are really two fundamental aspects of that. First is making sure that the population, and let's say the patients themselves, realise that there are things that can be done to help uh, vision impairment. And that's largely around magnification and increased contrast in some format or other. So if, if for example, a visual acuity of 612 is, is half as good as a visual acuity of 6 over 6, okay? Or 20 over 40 is half as good as 20 over 20. So if you had 20 over 40 vision, if I make the object or the detail within the object twice as big as it was originally, then technically you will have the same level of vision as somebody with 6.6. You will be able to see the detail of the object as well as somebody with 6.6 or 20-20 vision. Now, once you've got that, then you have to decide right now, how can I give you that magnification? Do I stick the paper on the photocopier and change it from A4 to A3 and double double the size of the text? Or if you need a lot of magnification, do I do that for you with a telescope? which obviously is much more complicated than glasses and looks really odd compared to glasses, but we can do it that way. Or I set you down in front of a television or uh, I give you a lap, uh, an iPad or whatever and say, there you go, use your finger and thumb to make the print as big as you like to make it comfortable for you. So there's lots of different ways of, of essentially managing magnification. And then once you've managed the magnification, then it's a matter of, what, well, what can we do to your daily living tasks to make those easier to undertake or to do. Uh, Some of them might not need to be magnified if we make them easier to do. Easier to do by touch, easier to do by sound. You know, talking talking watch, uh, talking clocks, those sorts of things. So there's lots of different things. Some of those will be done by optometrists, generally the optics. Uh, Some of them will be done by uh, social workers and rehabilitation officers, which will generally be the daily living tasks like giving you a, um, uh, let's say, a liquid level indicator, which you clip inside your cup. And as you pour the boiling water into the cup, as the boiling water comes up to the level of the indicator, it goes beep, 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 and tells you, that's it, stop now, because any more, it'll be all over the table. So you've touched upon um, technological advances Can you tell us about some of the latest technological advances and aids available for individuals with low vision or blindness? 
Yeah, another great question. So um, I, I've been at this long enough that I've seen huge changes in technology over the years. Whenever I started doing low vision clinics in, in London many years ago, really the answer was all about optical devices and magnification. Either you made the object bigger or you used an optical magnifier like a hand magnifier, a stamp magnifier. Sometimes it could be built into spectacles or a telescope to make things appear bigger. You didn't make the object bigger, you made the image on the back of the eye bigger. And I would say one of the things that has transformed low vision care uh, almost exponentially in recent years has been the introduction of technology like iPad technology. And that's particularly important at the young end of the spectrum to start with. Kids get these things now for school and they can work away with them in exactly the same way as other kids in the classroom will use the devices uh, and, and use the same devices, but they can control the size of stuff on the screen, the contrast of stuff on the screen, the colours on the screen, all those sorts of things. And now, I would say in the last five years, one of the bigger changes has been for older people because they are more technologically savvy than they were 10 years ago and they can now use these devices as well whether it's on their phone or whether it's an iPad so I would say the most fundamentally useful low vision device that's available now is the iPad or the iPhone or the Android alternatives to those devices. I just want to ask on the back of that do you think that there might be any future advances it's quite a niche question but you mentioned about the iPad and the iPhone in terms of app development, has there been any recent app developments that are helping with low vision? Yeah, yeah. One, one of my colleagues, a guy called Dr. Michael Crossan uh, from from uh, England, he, he's one of the senior uh, optometric low vision specialists in England, uh, and he has done a lot of work on apps. And, and now through organisations like the RNIB, you can get full lists of these apps that are available, and they're brilliant. You know, you can have the app on your phone, and you you know you point it at something on the desk, and it'll tell you exactly what's there. You can point it at someone's face and it'll tell you, not just that it's a face, but it'll tell you who it is. This Michael Crossland was over, this is a little, little amusing story, but he was over and he took our postgraduate class for us in Belfast a number of months ago. Uh, and he went through various apps and various bits of technology uh, and he said, oh, this one here is really good. It'll tell you who you're talking to. And he pointed the phone at me, switched the app on, took the photograph and it said, yeah, that's Jonathan Jackson age 65 <laughs> which was astounding that it knew my details and all the rest of it so there is fantastic technology um, being developed uh, and, and by the way I'm not quite 65 <laughs> We're hoping that the podcast isn't just aimed at medical professionals but also patients in Northern Ireland that suffer with visual changes uh, and uh, eye conditions How important is patient education and community education in the prevention and management of these conditions? Yeah, patient involvement is really crucial and I kind of come to this particular bit from two angles uh, through the NICRN uh, research unit that I work with uh, I'm heavily involved in, in uh, patient involvement or PPI activity in uh, ophthalmic research and in fact research broader than that and it's just so important to have patients built into all this sort of stuff for the start because at the end of the day it's not about me providing things doing research that shows I can make things twice as big using different types of technology it can the patient actually use it? Is it benefit to them? Uh, can they source it and, and um, access this stuff when it is produced? So involving patients is really important. And and uh, folks like Dr. Uh, Professor Julie Silvestri, who I uh, have worked very closely with patient interest groups in any of the, the research studies and, and clinical initiatives that we've been doing. 
That's great. Um, I just wanted to ask, is there anything healthcare professionals could do in general to improve the management of low vision and blindness across various disciplines? Yeah, most importantly, work together. You know, once again, when I started my profession, professions tended to work within their individual camps and shared information a little bit sporadically and a little bit cautiously. Nowadays, there's a much, much better understanding about, you know, we all have to work together to deliver outcomes for patients because these are living human beings that have everyday interests, thoughts, emotions like the rest of us. And there's no simple operation or simple device that answers all the problems for any one patient. So we need to work together. And I think it's been really exciting over my career saying, you know, lots of folks come in from different backgrounds to work together with optometry, with ophthalmology to deliver better outcomes. One great example would be in education. So education, now we have a paediatric low vision clinic on the Royal where we've got a qualified teacher for the visually impaired who sits in the clinic with us uh, and provides the educational advice and support for the children. Got uh, our orthoptist who's interested in binocular vision and how the eyes work together. We've got an ophthalmologist on on tap. We've got uh, an ECLO officer who links with the voluntary sector. It's a truly multidisciplinary uh, service. Um, and that number of years ago, that just would have been far too difficult to try and establish. Thanks very much for all these intriguing insights into your profession. Um, could you share any insights about current research projects or collaborations you're involved in? Yeah, so so I'm probably involved in research in, in a couple of ways. W- one or two studies that I'm specifically involved in, we've got a clinical trial on dry eye management and, and the progression of dry eye uh, that runs through NICRN. Uh, I work along with uh, Professor Julie Silvestri on uh, an implantable magnifier that is, uh, it's, it's almost like a, an interocular lens that you put in if you have cataract surgery, but it's got a special little magnifying component in it that gives you a retinal image magnified uh, and we've also developed a contact lens simulator for this that that's the same thing so in other words you can put the the contact lens in or this device implant in and you get one aspect of vision which allows you to see relatively as you would normally see for distance but the little magnified button allows you to get a magnified uh, image for for up close so that's exciting a lot of the other um, research or survey stuff that i would be involved in is around uh, vision impairment and blindness and it's to do with the certification register uh, and how things change over time Uh, along with one of my one or two of my colleagues we were probably the first unit probably even globally to get image to get information out about how COVID had affected certification rates in Northern Ireland, and we were only able to do that because we collect the data so quickly and are able to report on it quickly. Whereas lots of other units, masses of data, but this has to be collected so slowly that they couldn't get the message out so quickly. So those are the sort of things that I'm interested in. That's really interesting. I I just wanted to touch on what you mentioned there about the implantable lenses mm. and the contact lenses. Just based on, you know, the prevalence of low vision and blindness globally, but specifically here in the UK, I suppose there's a bit of excitement on the background of that. Is, it, is that something that's going to happen in the next couple of years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, with uh, uh, Professor Silvestri and I, you know, the, the results of this trial will be coming out in the next, next year or two. Uh, some pretty exciting stuff. But the important thing is these will not be for everybody. It's really important that you match the patient, the patient's psychology, the patient's desires, what they want to do with the outcome. Um, So there'll be a a careful screening exercise in place to work out who will benefit most from these devices. Professor Jackson, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been extremely interesting. I'm speaking 
on behalf of the two of us, but definitely very uh, valued insights you've given us today. Um, just before we finish, where can our listeners find more information about their eye conditions, perhaps online? Yeah, okay, so online, uh, if I was someone who, whose relatives had, had or I was concerned about a relative with vision impairment or my own vision impairment, I think one of the first stop-off points would be the RNIB. And they have a lot of stuff online that is very useful. And they also then will signpost you to other organisations that provide something different or additional to what the RNIB can supply. Uh, if I was a medical student or an optometry student, I think I would jump on to PubMed or some of the search engines and look for topics like low vision and, and you'll see the key papers coming out. Um, so yeah, depending on what background you're coming from, use a slightly different avenue. Professor Jackson, it's been absolutely fantastic to get speaking to you. Um, thank you very much for joining us today on iChat. Thank you guys, you've been great. Excellent, appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us today on iChat. And I also want to say a thank you to Queen's Annual Fund for sponsoring the podcast. Please stay tuned for future podcasts. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe to the podcast series to hear more. iChat is supported by the Queen's Annual Fund.